you know, if you look at birds, they don't discriminate what branch they're going to land on, right? They'll land on whatever branch because their faith is not in the branch but rather in their wings, right? So whatever happens, they've got the confidence and and belief in themselves that they're going to be able to deal with that situation. If the branch snaps, they can fly. They can catch themselves, right? They're not going to fall and hit the ground. In the same way, if we have a strong sense of who we are, that is the wings that we need. In 1837, Horace Mann created the education system, a system at the time designed to pump out factory workers and professors. The same system that is still being used today in the 21st century. Now, Mann's system is backfiring. We are being moulded by the same industrial system that has existed for close to 200 years. That system delivers us into a digital economy that has no need of our outdated skills. This isn't our teacher's fault. This isn't the government's fault. This is due to a rapidly changing world full of technology and unforeseen circumstances. And us Gen Zs are caught in the middle. Welcome to the Driven Young Podcast, the podcast for stressed, overwhelmed young Australians, teaching you practical life skills you can implement now to set yourself up in life. And now your host, Byron Dempsey. Welcome back to the Driven Young Podcast. And today's episode is all about how to find your identity. In my opinion, this is literally one of the most important things you can do in your 20s. And this conversation was amazing. I just finished editing it and hearing it for the second time. And it was even better the second time around. So I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Today, I'm joined by forensic psychologist, Alison Cullen. Alison is an experienced psychologist who not only works in the field, but runs her own company. Her work involves providing clinical intervention as well as reports for criminal matters, including psychological sentencing, management of offenders, fitness to plea, competency to stand trial, and mental status at the time of offence, civil matters, as well as child protection matters. And today's episode is all about finding your identity. I really think this is one of the most important episodes I've ever done. This opened up so many thoughts and ideas for me personally. We make it super practical as well for you as a listener. I won't say anything else because I want you to experience it the same way I did as a host. But as per usual, please DM me if you enjoy this episode or the show. I'm working on changing the format of this podcast cast a fortnightly guest episodes with every other week doing solo episodes with me talking about concepts and ideas I think are very important. This is really exciting to me. The idea originally came because so many of you told me how much you love the solo episodes I do, so I thought I'd introduce more. It also means I can focus on getting higher quality guests because I don't have to do one a week. I can do one every two weeks. So it's not really changing too much. I think it's going to be more valuable to you, but the guest episodes will be there regardless. I'm also working on the Driven Young newsletter. If you enjoy the show, I highly recommend signing up to that as I'm in the process of launching my next Driven Young program, which is very, very exciting as well. So lots is happening. Make sure you reach out to me if any of it interests you. Leave a review for the show and remember to stay young, stay driven. Now, over to Alison. Alison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Very excited about this episode. We're going to be talking, as you mentioned, about identity, how to find you know identity, which is kind of one of those things where it's like everyone's aware of it. It's like your passion. How do you find your passion? I know I need to find my passion, but how do we do it? So I want to unpack that in this episode, how to find your identity, how some strategies we can use, talk about our values and all that sort of stuff. Before we get into, I guess, the meat of the podcast, I'd love to know what did you do after high school and like what was going on in that decision-making process? Sure. So I was one of the lucky ones. I yeah. actually knew straight off the bat that I wanted to go straight to uni, do a Bachelor of Psychology. At that stage, I thought I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. So I got some work experience working with a clinical psychologist and realised that wasn't really what I wanted to do because right. unfortunately, this is a thing. You spend so many years going to university 
with this preconceived idea of what it's going to look like until mm. you get there and then you realise, well, that's actually not what I thought. Mm. Um, so from there I decided I wanted to work with more marginalised groups of population. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go into forensic psychology. So I did my master's in forensic psychology and um, basically that's where I've been since then. Love it. And, and, and so what do you do day to day? So it's very diverse. Mm. So we can do some treatment stuff, which I have previously done. I, I kind of limit that now. I do some group therapy and drug rehabs. Um, and then obviously there's the assessment side of things. So basically the forensic psychologist is anyone that works within the criminal justice system mm. um, with those individuals that have mental health issues. So that can be the children's court, that can be the local, district, supreme court. Um, so generally my role is to interview someone, try and understand who they are, where they've come from and how they've got themselves in the situation. Mm. So we do that through what's called a 5P case formulation. So we look at factors that predispose them to, you know, maybe alcohol and drug use or specific behavior, behaviours. And then we look at what's precipitated the particular offence, we call it the index offence, and then what's perpetuated their mental health across time, so maybe, you know, accumulative traumas or the loss of someone or the loss of identity, Mm. which is huge. Um, And then obviously we look at uh, protective factors and their overall prognosis. So that's the 5P model. So that's basically what we do. We do this report, we give that to the court, just to give the court a better understanding of who that person is. um, and, And I guess how they've got themselves in that situation and what their likelihood of recidivism is, mm. so the likelihood of reoffending. Right. Um, so that's the criminal justice system and then we've got the children's court and all different areas that we can go into. So it's really diverse yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah. And you mentioned like off camera, like you love what you do. I love it. Which is so refreshing to hear because it's like, it's awesome to hear someone who's, you know, into their career and they're, and they're loving what they're doing because it's crazy how common people say they don't or they're just like, yeah, it's just work. For them, it's just work. Um, but I do want to go back because you mentioned you're one of the lucky people who knew what they wanted to do, which is rare. Like most 18-year-olds have no idea what they want to do. That's so true. you knew before you were 18, you knew in high school. How is that? Like what were the things that made you want know that you wanted to be a psychologist? So I was very passionate about, even back then, I was very passionate about justice, you know, what's right and wrong. I was very black and white in my thinking. But using that to my advantage, I saw that if I went into a field that could potentially help me live out that value, Mm. I was going to be happy. But I also had personal experience of growing up with people around me that had mental health issues um, and I wanted to better understand why it was that they did certain things. So it was really about understanding that human behaviour, which was really intriguing for me. Um, So I originally studied it to sort of better understand you know, how mental health issues arise and how we can best fix them. You know, like I, I knew what they were and what impact they had and, um, you know, why people become the way they did, but I didn't know how to actually fix it. Yes, yes. You know, and that was the missing point, the how. Mm, the how, and that's why you went and, you know, got your degree and everything. And so I think what a, a key thing here to me from what I've heard and what I think is really important is you're curious. Mm. And I think when you're looking for a degree or like a – whatever you want to do if you're just curious because that probably means you're interested and curious in it that's a good sign that it's something you're interested in i think absolutely you're curious oh what's next what's next oh that's that's cool i'm curious about this 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 and it keeps you going if you're not curious about it and you're just doing it that's probably not a good sign and that's probably going to come into the values conversation absolutely so i did want to talk about this identity thing so you mentioned like in covid times 
not just COVID, but before that, young people are really struggling with identity. The whole world has kind of shifted in the past 20 years in very different directions. Of course, we've got social media. We're, we're comparing ourselves to all these different people. Which way should we go? Now, COVID has made us kind of become a bit like a hermit crab. We're stuck inside. All our conversations have been online. So do you just want to talk about what you're seeing when it comes to like identity and why you think people are struggling? Well, I think it's more than just COVID. Mm-hmm. I think it's to do with the fact that People have too many choices available to them. We, we have access to social media. You know, even when I was going to high school, I'm going to show my age now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there was no social media. There was no Facebook. There was no, you know, you didn't realize how much choice you actually had. A lot of the decisions were made based on what the family's expectations were or maybe what mum and dad did or, mm. you know, um, growing up, I didn't know half the occupations that existed, right? So the choices are limitless. The, the opportunities are limitless. Um, so that because of the the vast array of opportunity, I think people get confused and overwhelmed. You know, mm. it's like going to a restaurant when you get a massive menu and there's too much to choose from, yeah. right? Um, but also I think that we lack, we lack the desire to want to explore ourselves intrinsically as to what motivates us. I think we're so caught up in what we think we should do or what would look good or um, status. status or, you know, we're, we're not being real with ourselves. And ultimately that's where the identity comes into it. You know, if you can be real with yourself and identify what you truly stand for and what you truly value, you're going to be able to better understand what it is that's going to suit you and fit with you. Um, but then obviously with COVID, we've had so many other struggles in that time, not just being mm. restricted, but the uncertainty that's come with that and the focus on, you know, just trying to get through day by day, you know, like it's been a real struggle for everyone, whether you do know what your identity is or you don't, yeah. right? I mean, it's- I did a, a COVID mental health chat with my, I got a group of people in my program and we did just like a little catch up. I said, what are you guys struggling with? That The word you used there was the biggest thing, uncertainty. We're just sick of it. It's like, oh, every time I book a trip, it gets cancelled. Every time I try travel, it gets cancelled. So I'm just shutting off emotionally. I'm just going, well, what's the point? I'm not going to expect anything. And then life becomes a bit dull because you go, well, I've got nothing to look forward to. Because, mm-hmm. And then it, like even my mate's a musician. You just met him. Like, he kept planning events. They kept being cancelled. So it's like when he finally had an event, he didn't promote it much because it's like, I don't want to promote it just to have it cancelled again. Mm-hmm. It's just like this exhaustingness of uncertainty. People aren't getting jobs because they're uncertain. A lot of my friends are just... They're six, seven years out of high school and they're just still working casual jobs because it's like everything's so uncertain, which is, as you mentioned, whether you know your identity or you don't, everyone's struggling. Mm, Absolutely. And so what are some practical things we can do to help figure out our identity? You mentioned values. Did you want to explain like what a value – you mentioned an example. One value might be you value having being surrounded by people. So COVID would have hurt. So I'd just love to know what you mean by values. Sure. So values is like the blueprint of who we are. It's mm. what separates me from you, mm. yeah? It's what helps me design goals that are going to be achievable and realistic. Um, it's going to help me understand why I might react to certain things the way that I do so I understand my behaviour. It's going to help me to communicate better. Um, they are so, so, so important because they are basically that blueprint of who we are. And so... Um, the best way to sort of identify what it is that we value is to really think about how we feel in those moments of despair, but also in those moments of elation. So because that that's indicative that what we're doing is either violating our values or embracing mm. those values, right? 
So I'll give you an example. You know, if you think about a red Ferrari, no one wants a red Ferrari for the sake of a red Ferrari, right? They want it because of how it makes them feel. So someone might want it because to them it, it means that they've worked hard, they've sacrificed a lot, and it's all that hard work and dedication. So it represents dedication, hard work, mm. right? Someone else might want it because they like fast cars. Yeah, right. And they like adrenaline. So they want to feel that adrenaline, right? Someone else might want it because for them it's about being prestigious or superior. Like a sex symbol. A sex symbol, absolutely, Mm. right? So they might want it because it makes them feel like they are that sex symbol or they are superior. Mm. So people want things because of how they make them feel. So if we start to look at how we we want to feel, like what sort of things release that dopamine for us, Mm. that's a really good start to try and figure out how we feel. But sometimes that's not always that easy. You know, sometimes you've got to look at those real adversities that we go through in life to try and figure out, well, why, why was it that that particular event made me feel the way that I felt? Mm. Um, you know, so in those moments of despair, they are opportunities to learn about what we stand for, what we value. So in those moments of despair, it's, a, it's an opportunity to learn what it is that we value. So an example of that is that, for instance, I had a really serious motorbike accident. Really? Yeah. How long ago? Uh, 2016. Okay, so not too yeah, long ago. Yeah, yeah. So long. got hit by a car, motorbike split in half, nearly died. Wow. Um, spent a lot of time in hospital, protracted recovery, et cetera, et cetera. They told me I wouldn't get back to work for three months. Um, anyway, got home. I had two broken wrists. Mm. I had broken um, knee, broken ankle. So I couldn't even use crutches, Right. right? And the hardest thing for me, Byron, in that moment of time was that I was unable to be productive, mm. right? That's, that was my first fear when he said that. My very, I don't know if this is unhealthy or not, but my first thing was if I had two broken wrists, I couldn't work. Right, exactly. So it wasn't so much the, the physical pain. It wasn't so much for me um, the social withdrawal that came with that, right? Mm. It was the fact that I was unable to be productive, and so that particular adversity was an opportunity for me to learn how much I truly value productivity. Yes. Right? Right. Good point. It's so, so when you're in those moments of despair, you've got to really dig deep because often, you know, our conscious thoughts are the tip of the iceberg. But when we really start to dig deeper, we start to see that below that surface is something a lot more deeper in terms of what, what it is we truly value. Right? It's like, have you heard of the seven whys? It's like, it's just a fun exercise where you go like, so what do you want to do with your life? I don't know. Ask them a question like, oh, I want to be a psychologist. And I go, why? And you go, well, because my mum suffered mental health and I think that I'd love to learn more. Why? Because I felt helpless as a child because I couldn't help my mum and I couldn't do anything. Why? Because, because, and then once you get to like, they say if you can get five deep, that's really good. If you get to seven deep, that's often where you hit like the truest reason why you want to do it. Yeah. Simple exercise, but very effective. Yeah. So that's what we call deductive reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So keep keep going below those layers mm. to try and truly understand what it is. You know, most people think they value something because they want to value it. And that's yeah. very different to truly valuing it. So the interesting thing about that was that, you know, that particular adversity then carried on with me. And when I had my son... I started to feel, you know, like even though this was the happiest moment of my life and I wanted, I'd been longing for this moment. Yeah. Ironically, what happened is in that moment of trying to adjust to motherhood, I wasn't productive. Yeah, I was about to say. Right? Yeah. 
And so it re-triggered a lot of that feeling of lack of productivity. So again, it just reinforces, again, it was an opportunity for me to learn that it's reinforcing what my true values are, Mm. you know. And those values help me decide what it is that is the right job for me. It helps me set appropriate goals. It helps me find the right partner. It's everything. It's everything. That's what you you said. You use a great word there, like the blueprint of your life. Mm. It's like whenever you're confused of what to do, if you could like, it's almost like a video game character. If you can pull out, all right, what would I do based on these stats? Mm. It's like, what are your stats? What are your values? Okay, I value this, this, this. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe Mm. I should. And I think, in my opinion, that's almost what school, the goal of school should be, to help kids find their values. Mm. But it's almost the opposite. They almost strip your values away and kind of like put you as a one group of people. And as a result, when you finish school, you've got to unlearn a lot of what you learned. And now you've got to discover, who am I? What are my values? Because you're right. That is like, I mean, ironically, it's the most valuable thing. It's, <laughs> I guess why it's called your values. <laughs> right. But it is. It's that foundation to everything, yes, yes. isn't it? And like a lot of people won't learn that until they've had that failed relationship and try and ascertain, well, why did that fail? Yeah. Because we didn't have the right – our values weren't aligned, right? So every adversity, everything that happens to us is an opportunity to learn about what it is we truly value, you know, and then from that we can build a better understanding. And and the reality is that once you know what it is, if you can name it, you can tame it. Yes. Right? Yeah. So if, if something's happened to me and someone's violated my values, I'm going to feel uneasy about that. Mm. I might feel angry. I might feel anxious, whatever it is that I feel. But I can understand why I'm feeling that way because I, I, I know that my value, whatever that value is, has been violated in that moment. You can identify it. You can identify it. So if you can name it, you can tame it, right? It doesn't consume you. And that's the advantage here of that identity as well in terms of your relationships moving forward with people, whether it is your spouse or your friends or your, you know, your roommate or whoever mm. it is, it helps foster that, that ability to communicate as well. Because I think a lot of people are under the illusion like you just are born into life and you just kind of live life and like – you actually have to put in a lot of work. Not only was that simple, right? Exactly. <laughs> the thing that's what, that's what I assume people are under the illusion because I meet people who like put in no effort. They have no idea what their values are. And it's like, this is, it, to me, it's almost a sign of immaturity. It's like, in my opinion, like a mature person or someone who's really looking to improve their life will try to identify those values. Well, that's a value in itself, isn't it? Maturity. Byron? No, the, the will to want to explore and, and, right. and learn right. more about oneself. So and Maybe I said that because self-growth. that's a strong value of me mm. and I'm putting that – because I guess something I was going to say ironically was I guess there are no right or wrong values. No, absolutely there's not. It's all based on what your perception is or like how you want to live your life. So maybe me saying that is wrong and I'm putting my own value – projecting my values onto other people. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> and this is where our expectations – of other people and ourselves come into play. And this is where, you know, conflict can arise because we typically do. That's, you know, it's, I think, a subconscious thing that we do. We expect people to hold the same values that we do. Yeah, we do. I do as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, one of my other big strong values is teamwork. Mm. So when I see people around me not wanting to be my team player, I get really upset about that. Mm. You know, whether it's a co-worker or a family member or my, my husband, do you know what mm. I mean? If they're not working collaboratively with me, what, what's wrong with them, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's about coming back and going, right, this is my value. Just because I hold this value doesn't mean that other people do. And then that helps that dialogue happen in terms of managing that conflict or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Again, naming and taming it. You, if you can identify it, you own it. And therefore, you can work with it. But if, if you don't even know what you stand for, you don't even know why you're responding the way you are, to these grievances or, mm. you know, miscommunications, then how are you going to 
move forward in life and and have the career you want and be an efficient communicator or you know it's it's so fundamental to every aspect of our life it's so important it's Mm. so important and it drives me nuts that like it's not spoken about enough no because it it, you know i've done a lot of i work with a lot of young people and i see they they have no idea what they're doing they're so lost and then i meet the like Adam Powell's program we run, right? Sometimes you meet kids. At the end of the night, their parents come. And it's always interesting seeing the parents with the kids. Like, mm. yeah, like there's this kid the other day who's four. I don't like doing having 14-year-olds in the program. In my opinion, is a bit too young. Brent, who runs it, he's, a, he's got two kids himself. He's got a soft heart. I don't. I prefer to have it 16 onwards. But this kid was a, a machine. He was quest hands up the whole time. And then I met his parents, and his parents were amazing. And I'm like, well, there's clearly th- that alignment there. And I could see the values that their parents had just through like a two-minute conversation. Their values are talking. They're like, Byron, it's so good what you're doing. We're so glad that our son was able to come. They were so respectful. They were calm. They were res- like grateful for what we've given. And then you meet other parents, complete opposite. And it's a reflection in their kids. And so values are almost like generational, I find. I think that's really interesting. So typically, I have found anyway – that we value things because we've always had it. Mm. So it's been something that's instilled, like you're talking about, that generational stuff. Or conversely... We didn't have it. We didn't have it. It was lacking, right? And this is where that exploration into those childhood formative years are really important because they really are moulding us, you know. They're creating what we call schemas. And the schemas help us make sense of ourselves, others in the world. So if we understand those, we can understand how we translate that into what we value, yeah. if that makes sense. It totally does. Like, not, not to play the pity card in here, but, like, I had a great upbringing. We didn't have that much money. We lived in a small country town in New Zealand, and my value on money was insane. Like, now it's – I still value it, but, like, $5? Oh, my God. It was so much money to me because I didn't get it very often, and I had to work hard for it. I had to, had, I had to cut, cut the trees or I had to mow the lawns or whatever, and I had to earn it. And so my parents really instilled – the value of money on me because I didn't have much of it. Mm. And I'm really grateful because that's transferred over into my adult life. Mm. So there's a, a practical example of my life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you, I'm sure you could talk, but if there's a missing mother or a missing father in a child's relationships, I'm sure they have values that they crave certain things based on on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also they can crave it because they've, they've seen it lacking in their relationships yes. with their parents or... Um, for instance, you know, with my, my upbringing, you know, I saw the injustice of things that happened to people with mental health, which mm. was a very driving part of why I do what I do and why I value this whole sense of justice, mm. right? So if I've got this sense of justice and wanting to be productive, then running my own practice as a forensic psychologist is very fitting yes. because I'm able to, you know, be responsible and accountable for my level of productivity but i'm also able to help in my way be fair to those people that do have mental health because i don't believe that the people that have like fundamental mental health issues ought to be dealt with in the same way within the court jurisdiction to what those people that don't have mental health issues and it's very rare to say that because obviously most people that come into contact with the law have some form of mental health issues. Right. But there are still those some that are driven by greed, for instance, right? Mm. So if you separate those people from the ones that genuinely have, you know, drug or alcohol addictions or underlying mental health issues, 
I don't personally think it's fair that those people be dealt with the same way as right. the people over here. Right? How do you identify it? And I guess that's what your role that's is. That's what my role is. Right, right. And that's why it's so fitting right. with, my, with my identity and what my values are, right? Mm. Which is why I love what I do. Mm. Um, so I wake up in the morning every day excited to work. Yeah. You know, to me, it's part of my identity. But again, that's only one part of my identity. And that's the other part that's really important in this process is making sure we don't put all our eggs in one basket, you know. My identity, I'm a mum, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, I'm a wife, I'm a forensic psychologist. Mm. These are all my identities. Underlying all of that are definitely the same values. But in some of those roles, some some of those parts of me, some values are going to be, of course, you know, kind of higher than others. So the way I like to think about it is like a bit of a globe, you know. The, the countries are always there, but as it's moving around, mm. some of those values are going to be at the forefront while others are kind of behind. Do you know what I mean? It's always yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, to clarify, like your values as a mother are going to be different to your values as a, 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 what a forensic psychologist. Yeah. As a psychologist, right? Yeah. They'll be similar, but you might have higher priorities as a mother and lower priorities here or vice versa, yeah. whatever it is. It's almost like you've got different masks, yeah. different value masks. Different and you, parts. And you put them on depending yeah. on, you know, which, which hat you're wearing or which mask you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes total sense. But underlying all of that, those values are still the same. Yeah. So in any of those hats that I'm wearing, I would still expect, I would I'd be fairly confident to say that you ask any of those people around me to describe me. It'd they be would, similar. They would be similar descriptions because yeah. those descriptions align with those values. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, and it's all linking back to that blueprint. Yeah. Right, it's almost like as soon as you get lost when you're questioning what should I do, if you link back to your values and if you can identify them, the issue is if you're lost and you're like, what do I do? Well, I think my value is this, but if you can't identify them, then you can't really apply it. Name and tame it. Yeah, name and tame it. That's and so it. I think, well, do you, would you recommend like spending time, and it could take years, but identifying points in your life for like sitting down and like writing like six of your biggest values? Yeah, absolutely, if you can. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. The way, how you do that is identifying those sort of moments in your life that you really felt really elated or mm. conversely really deflated, right? Because mm. in those moments, you're really going to identify what it is. So it's all good and well to say, oh, okay, I value this. But do you truly value that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got to dig deeper and look at those situations in your life where you've hit rock bottom, yeah. so to speak, or you've been so happy and you've had that release of dopamine. Well, why? What's mm. going on for you in that moment? Do you know what I mean? Well, I think there's there's obvious values that everyone wants to say that they have. <clears throat> like, right. <clears throat> you know. Kindness. Kindness. <laughs> respectful. Like there's yeah. these words. And look, I would like, I think respect is a big part of my values as well. Mm-hmm. But don't just like use them, tick it off, write it down. That's right. It's like, because it's like, okay, let's get deeper. Like really what is it? And I think... COVID, for those of you who want to make it practical who are listening, what did you notice about yourself during COVID? When you couldn't see your friends, did that bother you? Mm. Did it cripple you? Mm. If it crippled you, then maybe having friendships and having good quality people around you is a really important value. If not, you enjoyed the time to be able to like work on projects and have a bit of alone time, then maybe you prefer that. Autonomy um, or yeah. independence. Yeah. yeah. Did you, when you had to work home, work from home instead of going to school, mm. identify what are the reasons? Did you hate working from home? Mm. Did you hate studying from home or did you love it? The like, introverts actually did really well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I was talking to a guest a while ago. I was like, oh, he was talking about how he's quite introverted. And I was like, you must have loved COVID. He's like, oh yeah, bring on another yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, Delta hit a few months later. Um, but yeah, I mean, personally, I'm quite extroverted and I really value having good quality people, not just anyone. Mm friends around me and so COVID really sucked mm. I was lucky I lived I moved back home with my parents mm. because at least I had my family around me but I was right. like for people who live by themselves I was it was terrible I don't know how you did it 
Yeah. I genuinely don't know how. Yeah. And so for me, that's a really important value. So I think that's a universal one people can use. Like what did you notice throughout COVID that were your values and start to consciously identify them, name and tame them. Mm, exactly. Which is really important. Yeah. And what did you do in response to that? Like how did you manage those feelings of anxiety or depression? I mean, we, we know both anxiety and depression rates went up, right? Yeah. So how did you respond to that in that moment? What sort of strategies did you put in place to sort of mm. – minimize those concerns because ultimately you didn't have control over the lockdowns or having to study from home or whatever so how did you manage those well for me like i have shared a similar value which is productivity like we we already mentioned as soon as your wrist were broken my first thought was oh my god (laughs) because at least if you break your leg or something it's like you can all right you can't do what you want you can't be as social but you can still work Mm. um so for me productivity so i really like what can i you can't control lockdowns but what can you control Mm. Well, I run my business from home. Any, I used to run go to a co-working space because of the social. I paid extra money to go and be around people. Now I can't do that. That's all right. I'm not as productive, um, but I just, what can I control? So I started working on new projects. I started filming stuff. I started doing whatever I could to make myself feel productive. Mm-hmm. My, my biggest fear, and I've heard stories of people who did nothing throughout COVID, and I'm like, that would make me feel sick. If I, had I three actually admire off. them. I'm like, how yeah. do you do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, if I just sat and played games and did nothing for three yeah. months, oh my God. Like, some people would say that's a dream. Yeah. But, like, to me, at this point in my life where I'm trying to build something, it's like my worst nightmare. So, to me, I looked at it as an opportunity to sit with the feeling of being uncomfortable. So, to get comfortable being uncomfortable, yes. that yes. was what I tried to focus on. So, I couldn't control what was going on, but I could control how I responded to it. And that's a big difference. Do you know what I mean? During COVID or during your injury? During COVID. Oh, both, both right. really. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. But if we're talking about COVID, I saw that as an opportunity to try and get comfortable being, you know, uncomfortable. Yes. And again, reflecting on that, what does this mean for me and what I value? It was also for me, I was like, okay, I, I, I already knew I valued having people around me. That was where the co-working space, <laughs> the co-working space kind of came into how much I valued that. And then I... Also joined what's called the five thirty club. So I met people in the morning at five thirty, and we had built a good, great community there. And then that book came together because I met people at a retreat, mm. and I started having more quality people around me. So I had already identified that pretty early on. I was like, okay, so this you is- were pretty productive during COVID. No, by this, the is, sounds this is before COVID. Oh right, right. So before COVID, I identified that, but then yeah. it just shined a light on it again. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm not around people. Look at the. I didn't have depression or mental health issues, but I did definitely go down a bit and I did struggle. Like, that tells me you value connectivity yes. or unity or something like that, something deeper. So it's not just having people around, it's how that makes you feel. Do you well, feel connected? Do yeah. you feel, you know, unified? Like you dig deeper that that seven whys that you're asking. Yeah. Well, why do you want to be with people? What? How does that make you feel? But even like a brainstorm, right? Like I could sit here and put ideas in. Or I can have someone here and bounce ideas off them. And it's so much easier for me to have someone there. So we're just talking um, about how from zero to seven, 95% of who you are is developed. Basically, the point is from a young age, a lot of trauma, a lot of issues are developed then. We did this process at Empower You used to do called Hands On. It was a 45-minute visualization where you go back in time and it's this whole thing. And we've run it. We also run this program for adults and we're for the kids' parents. And we're running it for the parents. This was one woman and she said before she came to the program, she said, I'm terrified of the color white. We're like, that's, that's weird. Okay. Um, so we gave her a blue notebook and whenever the projector screen was down, she couldn't look like, we we're like, oh my gosh, this is really weird. When she did hands on and she shared, she said, yeah, um, I went back to when I was two years old and I was playing out in the field with the, with the ball. And then this dog came up, went through the gate and barked in my face. Guess what color the dog was? White. White. Right. And so I was like, there's such an interesting story that shows how much 
our childhood and what we experience in our childhood affects us today. Like this is 50 years mm. later and she's only just identifying it now. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a big part of kind of, I'm sure you deal with that a lot with your, your patients who have gone through like a lot of trauma and stuff. Mm. So I think, you know, like the, the reason why I've, I've personally found identity to be so, so important is because Obviously, no one comes to a psychologist going, hey, I feel great, right? Yeah, yeah. They're always coming with some sort of crisis. Yeah. They're coming because they've lost their job. They're coming because they've, you know, ended a relationship. They're coming because they're experiencing bullying or something at school. They're, they've got, you know, health problems or they've got image problems or eating problems or they come with some problem yeah. of some sort, right? And when you strip all this away – ultimately what they're coming to you for is an identity crisis. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm. that it's that prevalent that if you strip all that away, whether it's someone who's wanting to get into recovery from drug and alcohol, they've got to let go of one identity to get into that. Mm. Or if it's trauma like you're talking about, you've got to let go of that identity or that identity that you're holding on to, you know, like that fearful part of you. Mm. There's always a part of of you that needs to be worked on to form a new identity. And that's what we do a lot with these courses we do at Drug and Alcohol. You know, how can you get through recovery unless you go through that process of re-identification? Mm. So you've got to re-identify yourself to know who you are so you can stand on your feet and go, this is who I am and this is how I'm going to make decisions because without knowing who we are, how do we put boundaries in place, yeah. right? How do we know, right, this is my boundaries. This is, these are the parameters of which you can and can't treat me right? Because this is what I will and won't to- tolerate. I know that if you step over that, it's going to violate my value, right? I see it all the time. Like I, the amount of people you see who are in like a relationship and you're like, why? Why mm. are you in a relationship with this person? Like, because I don't have boundaries. I don't have their values. It's like if I had their values, I could identify that they're breaking them and go, all right, maybe this person isn't for me. Um, but it, do you, I'd love to hear your opinion. Like, do you think it's okay? Or do you see it's quite often that people have new identities, like, Every four or five years, they change, they have different values, or is it like usually rock solid? Look, I think the values that underlie it yeah. are, are, are typically always the same. Do yeah. you know what I mean? People are always going to change. Experiences change us, mm. grief changes us. Do you know what I mean? That's a big thing. Um, and I, I, I like to talk about grief very separate to everything else because, you know, trauma. Trauma is so deeply rooted in our bodies and it, and it creates this separation between mind and bodies that there's, you know, it's a whole different specialist field to talk mm. about trauma. I'm talking about the things that, you know, it's not what happens to us but how we respond to it, which yeah. is very different to trauma because trauma sometimes we don't have control over how we respond because, for instance, that dog, that white dog, do you know yeah. what I mean? That's so traumatic that that is so deeply rooted in her body that her body remembers what happened in that moment. So – there's this disconnect and so trauma is very different to all these other things that we talk about. When like we, you getting on a motorbike again. Yeah. Well, I, again, being a psychologist, knew the importance of getting back on the horse, yes. right? So for me, it was very much, I had to do that. But when I first had it, I couldn't even hear a motorbike. Oh, for sure. It was like, <gasps> every time I did, I'd get that response of <gasps> jumping, yeah. right? And that's you not having control because of the trauma. Right. Absolutely. And so over time, of course, I managed to get back on. Thanks to my husband, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, through, you know, making sure I got on the back and then eventually worked up to get on. But the, ultimately, 
what I valued about writing, which was that freedom, was lost. Right. So going back to your question, can it change? Absolutely. Mm. You know, in that moment, I valued so much being on a bike because I valued being free, yeah. right? In that moment, it's true mindfulness. Nothing else exists except for you, the bike and the road. Yes. You, you can't possibly think of anything else because if you do, potentially you're going to be in danger, right? Mm. So in that moment, you feel the breeze on you. You feel the, the vibration of the yeah. bike. You can smell the, the fumes of the car. You can see the lines on the road. Like you're in that moment and in that moment, it's just so liberated and free. Mm. And that's what I was chasing when I was riding a bike. That's what I loved. Mm. Not so, the bike. Not the bike, yeah. right? Going back to that. And not the status of the and bike. Not, the, We're not looking cool. <laughs> no, like, not at it all. It was all freedom for you. It was all freedom. Like the Ferrari example. Like the Ferrari example. Yeah. And so unfortunately, because of that experience, I haven't been able to get that same yeah. level of, you know, feeling free and feeling independent and feeling liberated. Do you know what I mean? Certainly try through other ways now. So again, if you understand what you value and why you do the things you do, you can then try and find other ways to bring that in. So for instance, now I like to go hiking and be in nature. Mm. Anything that's going to, you know, help me to, you know, feel those senses, to heighten those senses, whether it's, you know, the smell of the fresh air or the scenery of all the greenery or whatever it is, Mm. If you can try and mimic what it was, then you're going to get as close to, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's changed my identity. Before because, that, I used to be a bike rider, yeah. right? I'm but no I mean, longer. Like, again, because you value, you can identify that you value freedom, then you can go, okay, well, I can find a way to replace it. It doesn't have to be a motorbike to be freedom. And that way, whereas if you valued the actual motorbike and the status that's of the right. bike, a hike isn't going to replace that. Exactly. And that's where you can start to see the, dif- the differences between like values and just doing something for the sake of it absolutely because of how it makes us feel yeah and a lot of a lot of time people aren't attuned to how they feel right people i think that's what's missing a lot these Mm. days in and not just in in any particular generation i'm talking across generations Mm. and and distractions that we have available to us these days help us to not be able to connect with how we're feeling right they distract us so we don't have to feel we don't have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because there's so many things to distract us we don't have to confront because we can do it over text or we can avoid it that's right like i see this all the time especially i mean maybe not especially with young people that's just who i work with but you know very very easy for them to avoid confrontation Mm -hmm. very easy to avoid your feelings just hop on tiktok and numb your brain for a bit I say that as someone who's grown their entire business through TikTok. Like, it's a great platform for me, but it can also be very just kill time. Just open it up. I, I don't know what to do. And I do it all the time. I'll catch myself. I'll have like a minute of waiting at a traffic light. I could sit there and wait or I can pull out my phone and distract myself. It's just the world we live in now. Mm-hmm. And so I think the important thing is just to be consciously aware of this mm-hmm. and not just let this stuff control you. And that's where things, I think, you know, issues like increased anxiety is so prevalent because we we have this instantaneous um, immediate gratification. And when that immediate gratification is not there, it's like, oh, I feel anxious. I don't know how to sit with myself. Mm. And how are you going to explore yourself yeah. if you can't sit with yourself? How are you going to explore what your values truly are if you're always distracting yourself, mm. right? So I think there's so many reasons why we struggle to identify what it is we truly value. And in, in the absence of what we value, we will never know who we really are. Yeah. 
And that's the ultimate goal here. You know, how do we get there? We need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We need to stop the distractions. Mm. We need to look at all the things that happen to us as, as opportunities to learn. So we become curious about those things that happen to us, not just numb it out through drugs and alcohol or technology or, you know, avoidance, mm. which is typically what we do. You know, mm. so again, as a psychologist, what we typically like to do with people is to try and identify what's happened to us how have we interpreted and appraised that? So there's a belief system because that belief system ultimately drives how we feel and how we respond. Mm. But I think how we're responding nowadays is through avoidance, mm. distraction. You know, we're not wanting and, – and not so much drugs and alcohol. I think that's on the decline now. It is actually. Yeah. Studies have shown that's on the decline for young yeah. people. Yet anxiety, depression, going mental up. health issues are going up. Because there's other ways. So yes. drugs and alcohol is no different insofar as it was a, a strategy to avoid – feeling the way like it's an, it's an escape addiction. social media is an addiction That's your right. phone is an addiction drugs is addiction alcohol is an addiction so we've got this dsm which is the diagnostical statistical manual which is basically the bible for psychologists right yeah. it's got all the different diagnoses in it and they are actually looking at putting in the the addiction to technology it's not currently it's in not there yet. it's not in there yet oh, okay mind you the, the newest one i think was about oh, not quite 10 years that it came out wow. okay. so I we mean, are due for a new one. But social media came out in, ten, oh, I guess, maybe 15 years ago. That's right. Yeah. But the addiction to it, I mean, it was it's definitely in the back there is something to be considered. Mm. Um, even back then, it was known that it could potentially – because how do you define an addiction? It's a dependency, right? So dependency is based on tolerance and withdrawal. Right. So if you have withdrawal symptoms or you're using it more and more and more to get the same effects, building tolerance to it, yeah. that's really – Well, the issue is with, with like drugs, alcohol, the withdrawal symptoms are – clear but with social media it's like you're just craving your phone am i having withdrawals or am i just craving my phone um and we see this like at our camp we do from power you know phones for five days shit themselves but by day three four they're like oh that's like a weight off my shoulders i feel so free like and then they're straight back into it of course like it's just how the world works we need our phones um and some of us truly do yeah but for instance like i i run a business i have to have my phone same with me yeah. because if i don't have it i'm going to miss those emails and it's going to make make my night a lot longer when i get home and have mm. to respond to them so if i can find five minutes in the day to sit there and respond to a few it makes sense right mm. making me productive yeah yeah <laughs> But ultimately, what that's also doing is there's this expectation of instantaneous responses. Back in the day when I was growing up, again, showing my age, you had fax machines, yeah. right? So if you sent a fax, there was no read receipt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, there, there was. You can say that it's gone through, but you don't know when that person's received it, yeah. right? So you're not expecting an immediate response, you know, or you leave a voicemail or whatever. Back the, again, no phones growing up, no mobile mm. phones. You might have left a message on someone's answering machine, but you don't know how long it's going to be before they get there. But now we have this expectation that phones are tied to people. They have immediate access to mm. emails. They have immediate access to voicemail, right? So there's this sense of urgency. And where's anxiety come from? Yeah. Sense of urgency, right? So this sense of urgency to respond to things is creating this anxiety. Mm. And all these reasons, I think, is why our anxiety is getting higher and higher. 100%. Have you read Sapiens? No. Well, you, sh you should. It's a phenomenal book. It's all about human history. Um, he goes way back and like it talks about civ ancient civilizations and all this stuff. Very fascinating. But he talks about how like to tie this point together, he talks about how like when we went from hunter-gatherers to the agricultural revolution. Hunter-gatherers, their day-to-day, -day, they'd wake up, they'd hunt all morning they'd and or gather berries and stuff. Then they might do stuff in the afternoon with the kids, whatever. They usually raise a tribe together. Then they went to the agricultural. And in from the 
from their perspective, it was like, this is great. We've now got wheat. We've got way more food coming in. The issue was it was actually a hor- much more horrible life because they now stuck in this one spot. They're having to work 10 hours a day. They're, they're, they're trapped. And so it's like they've actually dug themselves a hole where they've gotten worse and worse. And he's, he said that's actually applied to us today. Mm. We used to have to write letters and send them. Now then we could fax. Now we can email. And email sounds great. But the problem is we get 50 emails a day now and people expect us to respond straight away. Whereas when we used to, we'd write everything we needed in one email and one letter. We'd send it out. A week later, we'd get the response with everything we needed. But now it's just pure. Mm. And as you mentioned, that's adding more stress it's constant dopamine hits and it's causing more anxiety. Mm. Even though from the perspective of people, you know, 30 years ago, they'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. You can do that. It is. And social media is amazing. We can FaceTime our friends. We can do whatever we want, but it does have all those underlying issues. And I think also when you talk about anxiety, like we've talked about anxiety, but I think there's also the spillover effect into how that absence of dopamine makes us feel flat yes so then there's that depression that comes with it right and there's often a very close overlap between anxiety and depression so they say that typically people who are highly anxious or neurotic will Mm. eventually develop some form of depression right and depressed people are typically anxious and if you think about it it makes sense because if i'm always sort of anxious all the time that's going to lead me to feel quite helpless And the underlying feature of depression is helplessness. Right. Okay. Right. So it makes sense that these things go hand in hand. But how does media or social media impact on that? It's that absence of dopamine now. Mm. Like I'm expected to feel this high. And that's why when I go and, you know, look through things or whatever and it's releasing dopamine or I'm avoiding things, it's making me avoid feeling that flatness. So right? I had an extreme example of this with TikTok, right? When I first went, it's TikTok is such an interesting app in terms of because you can go viral overnight. And the thing is, suddenly your expectations go through the roof. Like you get used to seeing thousands of people. I was having, I, I'd have days where like three, four days, I'd gain like 5,000 followers a day. And everyone's commenting, you're getting used to this. The amount of dopamine it's hitting you is insane. But then with TikTok, it crashes and you get nothing. And so you start craving that. And it's like this emotional roller coaster, which, has, which is why so many TikTok creators don't last and why so many especially it can ruin the mental health of young people because if they go viral overnight they're expecting this and they keep posting videos and they keep chasing that viral video that they, they want to hit and so it can be really dangerous and I actually had yesterday uh, a um, chiropractor on he's got 2.9 million followers on tiktok insane like he just cracks people he just does what he just does his job and he just films him doing it and then he posts it like satisfying cracks and stuff um, but he's very professional. <laughs> do not tr- do not try this at home, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, but he's very professional, and yeah. he doesn't read any of the comments. He just posts it just to post it. He doesn't do anything specifically for TikTok. And I was like, it was interesting hearing someone of his maturity level talk about it. When mm. I've spoken with kids about it, completely different. It didn't affect him at all. But other people who went viral overnight, it's like collapsed them. They've lost their whole identity. Mm. Because their identity gets wrapped up in views and likes. Isn't that why Facebook at one stage took away... Instagram did. Oh, Instagram. How many likes you were getting? Uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's still gone. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, they did get rid of it. I think that's really great. Yeah. I think you can still see it, but no one else can. Yeah, that's right. Which and is what great. a difference that, that makes. Mm. Because is it how many likes you get or is it how many likes people see you get? It is. Right? That's, it is interesting that you can still see it. So if you've only got 97 comments, it doesn't matter because no one else can see it. Right. Right? And so, like, because I, I could share examples of some of my friends in high school. They would post at, like, 6 to 7 because that was the prime time to post. Yes. <laughs> they, would, they would be, if the video didn't, do, if the photo doesn't do well enough, they'll take the photo down because it's embarrassing. If it doesn't get enough likes in a certain amount of hours. If they don't get enough comments. Like, this is real. This sounds fake. It's real. I uh, know it's real. It's really bad. 
And so what's that telling us deep down? What's that telling us about where these people sit in terms of what they value and what their identity is? I mean, if my identity is caught up in how I'm perceived by other people... Yeah, that's dangerous. Like, what hope have I got? Mm. You know, where's my level of resilience? Mm. Absolutely none. You get resilience based on owning your identity. Yeah. And I'm very unapologetic for my identity. You know what I mean? Like, if, I, if I'm going to piss someone off because it doesn't sit with my values... Mm. I'm unapologetic about that. Do you know what mm. I mean? Because that's that's how true I am to myself. That gives me that self-confidence. And in that self-confidence, I'm resilient. But these people sound like so many things can can make their identity fragile and they can crumble, you know? I think young people have very little resilience nowadays. It's one of the biggest things I think. You, if that's You should be valuing resilience, you know, whether that's a, a value or just something everyone should have. I think it's what you get i think it's the byproduct of your identity yeah yeah. isn't it like if you don't have that blueprint that foundation that identity to the ability to identify what it is you stand for how are you going to stand in the face of adversity which is really what resilience is right how are you going to do that if you if you don't have this 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 established identity Mm. this is who i am this is what i stand for Mm. i'm unapologetic for it so come at me do you know what i mean because I'm true to what I stand for. I'm true to my values. So, again, I think that resilience is through that lack of identity, going back yeah. to this whole topic that we're talking about. Well, and especially, like, if in the dating world as well, it's so important. Because, as you mentioned, if, you're, if you've got boundaries, like the amount of people who have, like, they're dating someone that they shouldn't be, and everyone can see it, yet they just don't get out of it. It's like they just don't value – they don't have their values down. And if you've got rock-solid values, you're probably going to attract someone with similar values – because that's a good byproduct of having your values. You know who to look for. So you surround yourself with people with similar values, which is only But you're going to have you. a less pool of people to choose from too. Oh, 100%. And this is, this a much is, smaller pool. And this is where the whole... Tinder effect is, almost. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that need for dopamine and like, you know, that high of getting to know someone or the possibility of getting to know them or whatever. And you've got to weigh that up. Well, is that really in line with my values? For someone who pro- values productivity, I don't care. I'd rather yeah. put my time into something that's going to be productive. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But for someone that doesn't value productivity, for instance, they might think, oh, well, I'll just go on this one, just go on this one. But for what? Mm. You know, what's it achieving? And that's the other thing. I think most people would say they value productivity, but I think it's bullshit. Mm. I'd be like, do you really or do you just want to say that? Actions speak louder than words when it comes yeah. to productivity. Yeah, yeah. And because, I mean, that's something. That's why I like that one because it's quite a tangible it value. Is. You can actually see it. You know, there's some of these other ones like authenticity, for instance. Oh, that's so hard to... How do you yeah, define... Yeah, yeah. Like, where it's, it's not really that tangible, you know. Like, you can tell someone who's true to themselves because, again, it's that carefree attitude. Like, you know, your, added, your, your perception of me doesn't really yeah. faze me because I'm true to myself. I've actually got a great example. And I've said it... Listeners may have heard this before, but one of my best friends, Annalise, who she's dating my roommate and she's always here, she's a woman's public speaking coach and she helps them with confidence and public speaking and a lot of... Uh, a, lot, a lot of interesting stuff. But when she first started the business, she also studied law. And she, when she first started the business, she got all these like blazer photo headshots taken. She was wearing blazers. She had her hair done and everything. Um, and then she's like, oh, my God, that's just not me. That is, that's just who I wanted to be represented as. People, I wanted people to see me that to take me seriously because I'm a young woman who's going into this industry. So I wanted to like make myself look more serious. Then she got a photo taken like a year ago. And they're like these vibrant smiles, goofy glasses, and she's got like a you know authentic. bright colors. That is something authentic. You can yeah. that's tangible. You can mm. see the difference, the before and after. Mm. Super di- big difference. Mm. And she really talks about authenticity a lot. But again, it is hard to because almost anyone says they're authentic. You know, 
anyone can say I value authenticity. Well, anyone who cares what people think of them doesn't doesn't really. And that's yeah. how you refute that, isn't it? So it's really asking yourself, okay, do I truly value authenticity? Maybe I want to, yeah. but do I truly? Mm. Let's ask some questions that would otherwise refute that notion, right? So do you care what people think? Mm. Because if you do, then ultimately are you truly being authentic to yourself? Mm. I mean, me personally, if I was valuing authenticity, that means that that is the strongest part of what I'm focusing on. So if I'm focusing on that, I can't then be focusing on what people think of me. Yeah. Right? So those sorts of things, yeah, I think. Well, there was a TikTok I saw of a, an influencer, like a girl, and she was like, here's behind the scenes of how many photos it takes me to get the final photo. Mm. Oh, my God. It was insane. She's like, so this photo took 800 pictures, which is pretty good for a bikini photo or something. Normally they take about 1,100. I'm like, 1,100? Oh, my goodness. So she, that's what I mean. She's taking 11. Her friends are taking 1,100 photos before they get the perfect one. And then she's like, this one took me 1,600. I'm like, 1,600 photos. Like, and she says it so you know why that You know why that bothers you, though, Byron? Because that's not productive. And it's not authentic. <laughs> it's not authentic. It's like, you can't be productive. in How many other things could you do oh. in that time that it takes 1,600? It's not even the photo taker. It's filtering through 1,600 photos. Like imagine how long that takes. Yeah, right? And so again, going back to identity, yeah. see how how we respond to certain things is reflective of what we truly value. Right? And it, it, to me, it's the thing that annoys me more is your authenticity. It's like if you look, take 20, 30 photos. Like just sit there, take a few angles. That's great. Take a few minutes. But once you're hitting hundreds and hundreds, it's like it just feels how like – How can you keep a smile for that long? I don't know. And it's just like <laughs> – it just doesn't feel authentic. You care so much about what people think. You're that insecure. You're that worried about what people think. You have to take so many photos until one's perfect. It's like the, the crazy thing is now that social media is almost flipped on its head. People who are authentic and post like the first photo are the ones that people love to follow now. Mm. They're going – I've seen people post like – they should almost do like a one-photo challenge or like a, a three-photo mm. challenge. They just post it. Like but what if you look bad? Who cares? Mm. That's the whole thing. But perceptions are so big and so – so prevalent in today's society, aren't they? I yeah. mean, I remember when I was doing couples counselling, this is before I was married, and um, a family member said to me, how do you do couples counselling when you're not, even, you're not even in a relationship, you're not even married? Right. How are you giving advice? And so they almost convinced me that I should wear a false wedding ring to give the perception really? that I was qualified to give the advice and, you know, mm. no, not that you give advice, but to, I was qualified enough to be that third person in that room. But also you've been in relationships just because you're not married. Right. And let me tell you, just because you're married doesn't reflect that you're happily married and that it's a functional marriage, right? And that's what I said in return. I was like, well, you know, there's lots of people out there that are stuck in relationships that aren't functional, that Mm. aren't happy. Maybe I'm more happy being on my own or maybe just because I haven't got a wedding ring on my finger, maybe I'm still in a functional relationship, you know, but that perception is so important, you Mm. know, like – People think, well, what advice can you give me? And I've had that said to me in the past. Mm. How can you help me? How would you know what it's like when you haven't been a drug addict? How would you know when you haven't been sexually abused, what it's like to be a victim, a a survivor of, you know, sexual abuse? How would you know if you've never been through divorce? How Mm. would you, you know, and so, again, perception is that unless you've been through that, you've got no understanding. It is interesting because I can see the argument. I can I, see from someone who's lashing out, who's maybe gone through a sexual assault or something, and they're angry, they're frustrated, they're trying to be heard, and it's like, but you haven't done it, so what advice can you give me? So I can see their perspective, mm-hmm. but it's not healthy. It's like you're also a trained, qualified, you've dealt with probably hundreds of patients, you've learned, you've gone through this stuff, just because you haven't actually experienced exactly what they have doesn't mean you can't give advice. And I'm sure there's like fundamentals that go across any form of trauma. 
Well, I think ultimately to be a psychologist, you need to have a level of empathy. Empathy is such a big thing, right? Isn't it? And yeah. so that's another value of mine. Another part of who I identify with is mm. is that empathic person, being able to literally put myself in my in someone else's shoes. And so if I wasn't able to do that, I wouldn't have you know I wouldn't have lasted this long in private practice. That's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. If you don't have empathy, how do you put yourself in someone else's shoes to really understand how that felt for them? And sometimes that little bit of separation, you know, it's like. I think personally, it's a strategy that we use in psychology. You need to be able to separate your feelings and your thoughts. Mm. You need to be able to say that these are just thoughts, you know, and not buy into those thoughts. Where if I've had that firsthand experience, I'm then going to be tarnished by my own projection of what that means, right? Yeah. Or my own trauma that might have still, you know, not been integrated into who I am today. Mm. So there's lots of advantages of not having been in that situation. You see it more objectively. Oh, so you have an objective overview. Yeah. Like going to the sexual assault example, if you went through something that was super traumatic, you're going to be projecting a lot of what happened to you rather than focusing on your And I could be focusing on how it's re-triggering me. Yeah. 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 So creating that distance between the experience and the thoughts or the thoughts and the beliefs. I mean, we do that a lot in psychology, you know. Mm. How do I separate? Like we are we are separate to our thoughts. Our thoughts are just thoughts. They're just words, right? So again, being able to separate that experience is really advantageous as well. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is this has been interesting. This is I think before I get to the final question, are there any like final things we wanted to cover when it comes to discovering your identity and your values you really got to again i'm going to reiterate this you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable and that means really sort of sitting in that emotional space which i think a lot of us try and avoid you know um because if you're not in that emotional space how are you going to identify how you feel when you're leaving out those values or when those values are violated you know and a, a classic example of that is looking at the difference between anger and anxiety right yeah right so a lot of people will say oh, i'm anxious or i'm angry or they can't actually differentiate between the two so a lot of people will say i'm anxious but are you really anxious or are you angry or are you angry or are you anxious what i mean by that is the the physiological response that we get from anxiety and anger are identical mm. right so if i'm angry or i'm anxious i'm going to get the increased heart rate i'm going to get the heart palpitations, I'm going to get the shallow breathing, all of those physiological responses that come with activating the sympathetic nervous system, which is getting us ready for the fight or flight response, right, is identical. So how then do I tell the difference between being angry or anxious? Mm. Well, that's really important, isn't it? I need to be able to have that emotional vocabulary to better understand how I'm feeling and what it is that's really sort of making me feel that way because we say in psychology that we feel because of how we're interpreting a situation. Right. Right. So if we work backwards, if I can't identify how I feel, how am I then going to work backwards to how I'm in- interpreting or appraising that situation? Without that appraisal, how am I going to understand why that's bothering me? What's mm. the value there that helps me identify with who I am? Do you know yeah. what I mean? So feeling is key. That's ultimately what we need to be able to do. We need to feel comfortable being uncomfortable and ultimately the the final thing that i like about the whole identity thing i like this analogy and i don't know if i'm going to do it justice because i heard (laughs) it somewhere else but i'll try and say it the way that i it makes sense to me you know if you look at birds they don't discriminate what branch they're going to land on Mm. right they'll land on whatever branch because their faith is not in the branch but rather in their wings right right so whatever happens they've got the confidence and and belief in themselves that they're going to be able to deal with that situation. If the branch snaps, they can can fly. They can catch themselves, right? They're not going to fall and hit the ground. Mm. 
in the same way, if we have a strong sense of who we are, that is the wings that we need, mm. right? And that's, I guess, why it's – for me, I'm so passionate about this area. People don't come to me because they're happy. They come to me because they're in some form of identity crisis. Yeah. How do we get them out of that? Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Name and tame it through your emotions. Learn to distinguish different emotions, you know. It's all about the feeling. Avoid the desire to want to escape through distractions. Yes. Right? Which is the easy out. It's the easy out. There's so many ways. And then also look at all those opportunities that happen to us across life as an opportunity to learn from that, Mm -hmm. to be curious about that. What's that telling you about who you are and what you stand for, what you value, Mm. right? These are all the how. How do I do it? So important. No, that's, that's, that little clip there is amazing. I was, it's funny because I was going to ask you, the final question I ask is what advice would you give to an 18-year-old? I feel like that was it mm. in terms of like your, your little piece. But going on the bird, I think the bird analogy is really great. We could have almost opened with that <laughs> to, to set the scene. Like, hey, we're, this episode, we're going to be developing your wings. Yeah. But it's true, isn't it? It's like if you can have rock-solid values, um, find your identity, that's going to allow you to land on any branch, even if it breaks. It's going it's to be the thing that pushes you through. When COVID wipes you out for two years, you can keep pushing through. When there's flooding, there's a world war potential, like there's stuff going on in the world, you can keep pushing through. And there's always going to be stuff happening. That's right. And you've got to just keep pushing through. And more and more by the sounds of it lately. You know, yeah. there's, we, haven't, we haven't had a break at all. Do you know what I mean? No. It's just been one thing after another. And bloody, like... And, Brent has a, such a high level of resilience for Empower You. Like, we've had so many programs cancelled. I was supposed to be running Byron Bay. For the first time, we we're going to be running it without him in Byron Bay. Got cancelled because of flooding. Mm. Three months before that, we were supposed to run it without him. Got cancelled because of COVID. Mm. It's just, it's always something. And you just mm. got to keep, and there's sales we're missing out on. There's money, there's refunds, there's all these issues. And you just got to keep pushing through. Mm. You got to keep pushing through. And that come, comes back to resilience, which is one of the most important things I think we can develop. Staying out of, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, which I guess as a byproduct is going to help develop your resilience. Mm. Like important messages. Yeah. And, and knowing that there are things in your control. So these are my values. In the absence of being able to do what I planned, what sort of goals can I put in place now yeah. that align with my values that can, I can focus on yeah. and feel that level of control in an uncontrollable world? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, I'll ask you anyway if you have anything else you wanted to add. But what would be your number one piece of advice to an 18-year-old today? Really try and get raw. Mm. Try and really determine what it is that you stand for and what you value because it's going to help you with your relationships, your career choice, um, your communication, your understanding of yourself. You know, really try and get that blueprint done. Once you've got that blueprint, it's going to change, but at least you have a good foundation to work from. It's a foundation, isn't it? And I'll ask you, like, I'm sure you deal with people who are like 30, 40, 50, 60s who haven't dealt with that. And so it's like, guys, if you can deal with this now at oh. 16, 17, 18, your whole life can change. You can set yourself up mm-hmm. so you don't have to have a crisis and deal with it when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Like, I think you can – I genuinely think we can avoid that by trying to deal well, with it. Well, even if you do have a crisis, I think you're going to manage it more effectively. A lot better, yeah. yeah. And you will. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a crisis, but stuff's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to have low moments, like that roller coaster thing. You, you're going to have down moments. And if the branch snaps, you've got your wings now. So, uh, Alison, thanks so much, so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, if people man. want to get in t- contact with you, follow you online, just kind of see what you're doing. I don't know if you're doing much stuff online, but where's the best place to go? Uh, Google. Just website? <laughs> yeah. 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 Website. I mean, my website's getting a lot of work done to it as well, but yeah. yeah. Okay, amazing. Well, I'll put all the links below, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.